0: a week, huh? A lot of bad things happened this week. But those kinds of things have been happening all the time. Um, We do need to keep in prayer, especially the innocent people. There's innocent people on both sides. There are innocent Jewish families in Israel, and there's innocent... Palestinian families in Israel who are kind of caught in the middle and uh, we do want to be peacemakers we want to we want to pray for peace um, we need to continue to think about these families and the families in Ukraine that war has continued to go on and it's just the world we live in unfortunately but the good news is there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to come a time there's no more graves, no more hostages, no more hatred. And that's what you and I are preparing for. You know, this world's going to get worse, but we can get better. Uh, We can learn to get better and become more loving, more understanding, more forgiving. But this is our preparation time. And... uh, there will always be things going on in the world, but I, I want us, as we continue to be in tune with the news, that we have a message. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And as horrific as the things that are happening in the world, as much as we want to pray for those families, we still got to move forward with the work. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. Um, because what's going to prepare people for heaven is the gospel, yes, not our political views. And so uh, there'll be a lot of distractions. There'll be distractions in the economy. There'll be distractions of all kinds to keep us, our focus off the revival that needs to happen inside of here and in this church and and in the world. And while we want to be in tune with the news and pray, we can't lose our focus. You know, there have been many revivals in our world. And they all stopped at some point. There was the revival of million converts. Do you remember that one? 1856, 1858. They used to print on the front page people's sermons, tell how many people came to Christ. And it stopped. Why did it stop? The fear of what might happen to the economy and near 1858 was the approaching what? Civil War. And people started focusing on those things, and the revival ended. We keep our focus every day, right? Yes. Every day you begin with God you get the proper focus and be in tune with the news, learn who to pray for and things like that, knowing that there's people suffering. And God wants to use this as a solution. Yes. But our best solution is make sure people are in heaven. Amen. Well, Paul, you're the first person I've ever met who admitted... that his genealogy goes back to Pontius Pilate. Um, Now, here was a man who had an opportunity to accept Christ. He had an opportunity to do the right thing, and he didn't. And if he had done the right thing, what a change of history, what it would have meant to the lives of many people who would have themselves made other decisions. But it's the same with us. The decisions we make every day influence other people's decisions. And so let us, by God's grace every day, commit ourselves to make right decisions. And knowing that our life is not an island. Well, thank you, Paul. We always like Uncle Paul's stories. We're going to probably uh, finish this series on immortality and the state of the dead. Not that we've covered everything. But we do need to move on onto some other topics. But I do want to kind of end with this idea. Of what is the lowest place in the universe? In the minds of many people, it's some burning, fiery hell that people have been burning in and being tormented in for at least 6,000 years or close to it. But what if the good news was... That the absolute lowest place in the universe is just the grave. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah. That we don't serve a God who's going to torment people in some place called a fiery burning hell. That exists for eternity. And that's the lowest place in the universe. Because if such a place did exist, it would be the lowest place. Yes. The grave, six foot on wouldn't be the lowest place. That would be. But what if there was a loving God who would never even conceive? of a thought of tormenting people forever. What if he had a judgment and people only rightly paid for their own sins, right? That it's just equity, it's just justice. Is that the kind of God we serve? Absolutely. And that thank God that the lowest place in the universe that we'll see here is what the Bible calls in the Old Testament Sheol and what in the New Testament calls Hades. The lowest place in the universe is just six feet below our feet. Praise God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven. Help us to help people to see how loving you are. That you're, you're not a, a tyrant that decided some would be saved, some would be lost. That somehow you're going to punish people for an eternity for one life of sin. But that you allow justice, perfect justice, justice to take place. And if it wasn't for your mercy, none of us would have hope of an eternal life. Father, we know you're not balancing mercy and justice, but you're the perfect blend of mercy and justice. With every person and every situation, you're 100% merciful and you're 100% just. Forgive us, Father, where we've weighed one way or the other. Help us to be the same way. 100% merciful. 100% just. just. And all that we do is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, and our first slide isn't going to talk about the lowest place. I just want us to think about, and kind of closing up this series, the challenge ahead of us. Uh, most of the world does not believe, as the Bible teaches, that we are a soul. We are a person. It's amazing. On the periodic chart, there's 128 elements and we're made up with 20-some of those, mostly just six of them. But to think that God can take things like carbon and stuff like that, form a brain that can think. Isn't that amazing? Have these seven systems in the body where we have a digestive system and a skeletal system. And it all works together because we are a living soul. And But within predominantly Christianity, there's this dualism that there's a mortal body that's going to die. But inside of us is an immortal soul that doesn't need a body. Right. And it just goes on and people are conscious. But think of the Bible, the story of creation. When God formed Adam of the dust of the ground, he formed man of the dust of the ground, right? And then he did what? (laughs) Then he breathed in him the breath of life and then Adam became A a living soul, a living person, a living Adam. So in the first two part, you have Adam created this perfect symmetrical body and there's God's breath yes, sir. which one of these is Adam is God's breath Adam no, no the body's Adam yes, sir. it's just a lifeless Adam yes, sir. what turns him into a living soul a living Adam is that God needed to do what He didn't just create a body. He had to breathe into him the breath of life. And then the blood started flowing. And his respiratory system started working. And then this perfect Adam that was a lifeless Adam. Became a living Adam. He became a living soul. And what happens at death is we stop. We stop breathing. And we become from a living Jeff to a. Because the breath is gone out of me. And people say, yeah, but it returned to God, and that's the immortal spirit of the person. But that's not the phrase. Yes, my breath is not me. Yes, sir. I'm me. Yes, sir. I mean, what a statement, right? <laughs> I mean, but it's all of who I am my body, my brain. This is me. Yes, sir. It's not my breath. I only have breath so I can be a living Jeff. And when I die my breath returns to God not because some conscious part of me returns to God right right and it's not that like everybody dies God says there's a little more breath I'm getting back no the breath returns to God it's a it's an explanation it's a it's a phrase it's a it's just simply saying it's not saying that literally our breath returns to God because how much breath is in me right now anyway there's not that much breath. And so that breath isn't actually soaring through the universe to the abode of God in, in the heaven, the third heaven. Yes. It's just an expression of saying where the breath came from. Mm-hmm. So that we don't believe in evolution. Because evolution says you have mass and then there was some lightning bolt and that created life. But no, that's not how life got created. Even if you have mass, if you could explain the universe without God and have mass, mass, you still need God to breathe life into it because yes, it can't spontaneously have life on its own. Yes, sir. Is this right? Yes, sir. So the breath that returns to God isn't a anthropological thing about me having an immortal spirit returning to God that's conscious. Mm-hmm. It's just saying that without God, there is no there is no life. And all life, whether it's animals or us, requires breath. respiration, yes. requires breath. Yes. And when I have breath, my heart begins to pump and my blood begins to flow and my brain begins to work. and Adam's eyes opened up and the first person he saw was was Jesus, his maker. And when that breath leaves, our thoughts go, they perish, okay? Well, that's the majority of people in this country fall within Christianity. And that doctrine, of course, has led to prayers for the dead, led to indulgences where people are paying for maybe the sins of their dead relatives or maybe their own because they know they're going to die pretty soon. Purgatory where people and some people's minds still have an opportunity to be purified and not actually go to hell, but they weren't good enough to go to heaven yet. Uh, Intercession of the saints is actually you pray and you're hoping that maybe some of your dead relatives or Uh, some saint of the past is alive and they add to your prayers. That's what this doctrine does and it has internal torment. But it's not the only challenge you and I face in witnessing with people and trying to share the truth about the state of the dead or immortality. Darwinism led to evolution, which not that there wasn't atheism before, but atheism really grew. There's a lot of people who don't think anything happens to us when we die. We just die. Because to have thoughts, rightly so. To have thoughts, you have to be alive. And people rightly know that when you die, you don't have thoughts anymore. But then they don't believe there's anything after that. So we face a large part of our population of people that believe that way as well. Spiritualism uh, has always been in with the human family, but it really started going around 1850 with a couple sisters. The Fox sisters, right? Uh, Hydesdale, uh, New York. Um The wrappings and everything. And now look at where spiritualism is today. And this was... So what kind of popularized them was there was a a guy. I forget his name. But he'd been dead. And they had this seance. And this apparently they say this man appeared and told him that his body was buried in a certain house in the basement. And so they go there and guess what they find? They find bones. (laughs) And therefore... The dead can speak to the living, you see. And that became a very popular belief. And you have people, 30% of our population in America believe they've already spoken to someone from the dead. Okay? And that's how, and that's spiritualism. That's, I mean, we're not just up against the dualism within Christianity. We face all these other concepts. Uh, near-death experiences, you hear people talk about it all the time. I don't know why they say that, because it's not death, it's... Oh, near death means you're really not dead, right? So, but what you do have is you have all these memories of things you used to believe in, right? And when you're in a hospital, generally you're under a lot of medications, okay? And when you're losing respiration, less oxygen's going to the brain, but the brain's still functioning. But you have all these memories, and so people are near death, but then they don't die; they actually stay alive, and they say, "I had these really interesting dreams or visions." Well, when you're under a lot of hallucinatory drugs, your brain is deprived of oxygen, what are the chances you're going to have a lot of strange dreams, okay? And so, but what's interesting is the dreams seem to follow and agree with their religion. For example, there was a Hindu woman who said, In my dream, when I died, I was, saw myself riding on a cow to heaven. Well, that's part of her belief system, Right? Uh, another man who's a Christian, of course, saw Peter at the pearly gates opening the door for him. I mean, this is, these are memories that people have already conjured up in their mind. It's already in there. The information's there. All the brain is doing is utilizing memories that are already there to give them these dreams or visions. But again, they didn't die. These are near-death experiences. And then we face New Age, Pantheism, Hinduism, Taoism. Those aren't synonymous, but they're, they're related in that people believe they have a consciousness, and that there's a divine consciousness out there. And at some point, there's going to be a lot of peace in the. We're all leading towards the a peaceful new age, the age of Aquarius, right? That was part of the new age movement. You just gave yourself away on <laughs> There, <laughs> we know where Penny was um, in the '60s. Uh, so, uh, anyway, there we go. I have always looked at Isaiah 14 from the perspective of what Satan tried to become. Mm-hmm. He tried to become God. But you know, I never really noticed the last part of the verse. Mm-hmm. Because right now my mind is spinning about state of the dead, state of the dead. What happens to the people when they die. And then that, of course, when you when your mind's thinking about a, a different kind of topic. You're looking at the same verse, but you're looking for different material. You're going to see different things. So notice... The highest place in this verse. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will send where? Of course, he already was in heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, he was the head angel in many ways. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. But here's the problem. I'll send above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like... Could he get any higher than that? The highest place in the universe is God's throne and God himself. Would you agree? That's the highest. And because he did that, he caused a lot of turmoil. God's going to lose a third of his angels. And there's going to be a lot of the human race that's going to be lost. But what God's going to respond with, because you are a created being and you try to be like God, the highest thing in the universe, you will be brought down to the, the lowest. But notice what it says here, the lowest thing is. Uh, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, this is a King James, but the word in Hebrew is sheol, which just means grave, to the sides of the pit. The literal translation in Hebrew, yet you will be brought down to sheol, the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit, or a grave, right? So God's saying, you tried to be the highest thing in the universe, and now you're going to wind up at the lowest thing in the universe, which which is sheol. It's not some burning, fiery hell. It's the pit. It's a grave. And that's what show means. Now, one of the other challenges we have, and I use King James as my study Bible, but the translators had a bias. Their bias was they believed in the immortality of the soul. And so they translate things. That, that should not have said hell. It should have just said grave. Okay? But there was a bias there that led them to translate it that way. We'll see that as we go through this. Um so sheol uh, is a word used 65 times in the Old Testament. It's translated as grave, hell, pit, or death. And the King James is translated 31 times as grave, 31 times as hell, because of the belief they had. And three times as pit. Now notice the difference here between King James and the Revised Standard Version. It says in King James 16.10, for thou will not leave my soul where? Mm-hmm. And hell, and their idea is don't leave me in this burning, fiery hell, Right? That's what they believed in. But you look at most any other modern translation, They a lot of them just leave the word Sheol, leave it up to the reader, because it is grave. For thou does not give me up to Sheol. In other words, when I die, I know I'm not going to some burning, fiery hell. But Lord, don't let me just stay in the grave. I want to live. I want to have a new body. I want to be part of the new earth. But that can only happen if I'm not in the grave anymore and God gives me a new, a new body to live in the new earth. So he's praying that his body, that he just doesn't remain in Sheol, in the grave. Uh, he's not thinking God's going to torment him forever. Okay. Notice that Sheol, Sheol is a place. Let's look at some scriptures there. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, that's thankfully, in darkness in the deep. So what do we know about the pit or the grave? It's it's If you're in a burning, fiery hell, it's not darkness. Amen. That's right. It's light. Right? But death is associated with darkness, with darkness yes. which is exactly what a grave is. Yes. There is no light in the grave. You're covered over by six feet of dirt. You know, you're in a casket. Yes. And so we know that Sheol is a place, and it's more than a place, but Sheol is a place, is just a grave in darkness. It also says here in Genesis thirty-seven thirty-five, and there are many other verses, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, I will go where? Down, Down into the grave. Now in New Orleans, they put him above water because of... New Orleans actually built below the sea level. So all the graves are above sea level, okay? But by and large, anywhere else in the world, the grave is, is down. Uh, so I go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. And generally, six feet, wherever, depending on part of the world. But notice also in this next word, verse, because we know down can't be that far because of the next verse. And the graves were open, and many of the saints, the bodies of the saints, which slept, What? Arose and came out of the graves. Now, if the graves was 30 feet below, it'd be a little hard to get out of there, wouldn't it? So the graves open up, and they they walk out, and they start wh- worshiping, because Sheol, really, the lowest part of the universe, really isn't that far down. Yes, it's only far down enough that if God resurrected someone, they're just going to come right out of the grave, and there they are, and they're witnessing in Jerusalem. Yes, so it is down, It is dark, but it's not that far down. And that, my friends, praise God, is the lowest part of the universe. Sheol is also a state of being. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the sheol grave, whither thou goest. So whatever you're going to do, when do you have to do it? Before you lose respiration, right? Because yes, if you lose respiration, you die. Whatever plans you had, what? No more opportunity. I'm sorry. Yes, you have to, whatever you're going to do, you have to do it before you die. Yes, sir. Okay? And we should have plans to glorify God, right? Yes, have highest plans you can be to have in becoming like Jesus and spreading and furthering his kingdom yes, sir. before you die. Yes, sir. Because there's no more work after that. Until the resurrection, of course. Isaiah thirty-eight eighteen. For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate they, thee, they that go down into the pit, you know, just six feet down, cannot hope for thy truth because they're not alive. They don't have respiration anymore. And they can't praise thee because, well, number one, you're in total darkness and you're not even conscious. Okay? Psalm 146, verse 4, His breath goeth forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day he is what? his thoughts perish because to have thoughts, you have to have a functioning brain which requires blood flow and, and respiration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hades is the corresponding word in the Greek. And I do want to say that Hades, uh, as a Greek word, the Greeks didn't understand Hades as it's used in the New Testament because the Greeks did believe in dualism. They believed that the body was evil and that when a person dies, it, they had an immortal soul that left it. It's like they got out of the prison of the body. Um, some of them taught it, didn't believe it. But they taught it to scare the citizens to be good citizens because if you're a bad citizen and you break the law, you're going to go headfirst into a burning pit. And uh, and that was their kind of their concept of Hades. But the the Bible is, is real. It's got to use some word. Yes. And it uses Hades as it used Sheol. So Hades is to be understood um, as Sheol in the Old Testament, just meaning grave. Now again, in the King James here, uh, because of the certain prejudice they had and believing the immortality of the soul, they translate the word, it should have just been grave, they translate it ten times as hell and only one time as grave. And that sometimes makes it a little bit challenging for us because people look at that word hell and they, they conjure up this idea of a burning, fiery hell. And it makes it a little tougher for us so the reason of sharing this is so that we realize that we can tell them, but you know, Hades just means grave, just like soul represents grave, okay? It does need to be part of our study and helping people. But let's look at the word Hades. The Greek word Hades comes from actually two words, a meaning not, and iden, which is the, the verb form, uh, and thus literally the unseen. So when you go down to Hades, you go down to the grave, you're going into the the place that's the unseen. Nobody sees you anymore, and you don't see anything anymore, right? That's that's what happens in a grave. That's that's just very logical. But notice how it's translated here: "And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to where?" I should have said grave, but it says hell. For it for if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. So. Capernaum was exalted unto heaven. How? Because Christ was there, Jesus was in Capernaum. They saw the greatest light that anybody could see. Jesus says, "If you see me, you've you've seen you've seen the sovereign of the universe." Wow! Talk about being exalted as a town. Wouldn't you be blessed if we were the only city? that Jesus came to was Cleveland, Ohio. Wouldn't Cleveland, Ohio be exalted? Yes, sir. Absolutely. But Jesus appears to us. I mean, his kingdom's within. But Capernaum had that presence of Jesus. Um, but they were exalted unto, think how high this, all the way to heaven, but they will, how far do they go down? Hades, meaning the grave. Again, that's the lowest place in the universe, is the grave. In fact, just graves in this world, right? There's no other world that has graves. There's no other world that has a hospital, right? And that's really a beautiful statement when you think about it. That the lowest, even though Capernaum rejected Jesus, and it wasn't every individual... That the worst, they will face the judgment. And as we studied a couple Sabbaths ago, there is mental anguish because you, you pay for your own sins. You feel the, the full weight and measure of your guilt. Um, but the grave, I mean, they'll die. There'll be death. There'll be the second death. And that's it. God's not going to punish someone forever. Amen. Uh, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forever, Amen. And have the keys of... Okay, don't... You said hell. Hades. Which is... That's really what Jesus... What a difference though in understanding, right? Yes, sir. And of death. Because grave and death go together, right? Isn't it amazing that we, we die, but because he lives, he can open that grave. I mean... He can create stuff out of nothing. He created the whole universe out of nothing. Yes. How difficult is he to open a grave that's only six feet down? But it's not saying he has to set a set of keys to a place called hell. Right. And that should never have been translated that way. That should have been translated as grave. Because those are the two last things, and we'll get to that scripture here in a second. Grave and death knows how they go together here. I look to behold a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death and Hades. He's not going to say it now. It does say hell, but it should be, it's hay, it's Hades. It's not talking about some burning, fiery place. Followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. How do you kill death? You ever thought about that? Okay. Well, anyway, just a second. The pale horse is who? Okay, very good. Pale is a color of death, right? But this is actually talking about a certain period of time. Because you had the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse representing the time that the papacy ruled. So the church ruled from 538 to 1798. Was it rightly described as a pale horse? absolutely 50 million to 100 million people were murdered it even tells us how they were murdered they were murdered by a sword is that true they were murdered by hunger and also death but death is a word in the greek phanatos which also means pestilence that the papacy used pestilence what about this country they used pestilence yeah, smallpox. To kill Native Americans, they put smallpox on, on um, blankets and gave it to them and wipe out a whole Indian village. Okay, So they, this, is, this is actually true. And this was said centuries before they even existed as a church. And so, so death is being personified here as death and hell or the grave. But what they did... Is that that what we call the dark ages brought about death and the a grave in an unfortunate kind of way, right? Alrighty. Verse twenty and verse or chapter twenty, verse fourteen of Revelation, and death and no. <laughs> That's right, Hades, meaning death were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I want you to think about that. If hell were a burning, fiery pit, which is already a fire, how do you throw the burning, fiery hell into a fire? You're you're destroying fire with fire? And so, uh, to me, that would just make it hotter. But see, Hades means grave. And this is a beautiful promise that at the end of the thousand years after the judgment has everyone's faced the judgment, the ones who won't receive eternal life, that the lake of fire isn't to punish people. It's to put an end to grave and... So there will be no more death. And there will be no more graves. Praise God. This is a merciful... You know, people will take this and with this idea of a burning fire hell, that means torment's going on. But no, God says, no, I'm putting an end to death in the grave. No one's going to die of anything anymore. This is the end of it. And praise God, the the controversy started more than 6,000 years ago, started in heaven. And notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Yeah, death is real, and it's an enemy. Isn't that an enemy for us? Because if you die and there's no plan of salvation, what? That's it. That's, that's it. That's the end of our existence. Okay? And that's bad enough, isn't it? Because Jesus didn't come here to say, okay, pick A, eternal life, or B, being tormented forever. He said, no, you choose between living forever and not living forever. Mm-hmm. Right? That's his offer. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for this corruptible, which is our current body, mm-hmm. must put on incorruption, which is at the second coming. Yeah. And this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought in the future here, hopefully very soon, to be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. O death, where's thy sting? O grave, where's thy victory? And here's that one time in King James, it's actually translated as grave. Every other is is hell. But this is correct, isn't it? Right? Because they go together. So let's talk a little bit about Lazarus and the rich man. Um, if, uh, the scripture's right there, uh, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. Let's stop there. What do we know about these two men right now? They are on the opposite ends of the social scale. One man has excess. Everything a human being could want as far as temporal things, he had it. Lazarus is an invalid. The reason he laid at the gate is because he couldn't move. And he had bed sores. He had sores on his body because he couldn't move. And he would beg for crumbs because he had no way of making a living. What a contrast. And so in this life, one had everything, one guy had sickness and so forth. Poverty. That goes on. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and who else? Well, the rich man. And was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which Jewish people understand is not to be taken literally, but to paradise. Okay. The rich man also died, so people died. And he was buried. Because that's the grave, that's Sheol. And in hell, it should have been grave, he lifted up his eyes, but now Jesus, Jesus is actually, of the times he uses the word hell, he's actually, and this is the only occurrence in the teaching of Jesus, where he takes hell and he does paint a picture as if it was a place of torment, okay? But in every other instance, instance, it's just the grave. But he's trying to teach a point here because this is not, this is a parable, Okay, and in hell or the grave he lifted up his eyes being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom so now their roles are switched you see the switch now the one man was an invalid sore poor in poverty and now he's in Abraham's bosom and the rich man who had everything in this life has nothing he's in torment okay and there's this great chasm between them um It goes on, and he makes two requests, the rich man makes two requests, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, this is the rich man, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and Lazarus likewise evil things. But now he's comforted and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's this what? It's a great gulf that's fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you, they actually cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So what you notice about this is that in popular teaching, once you die, you have a disembodied spirit that goes and it has no body. Is there a problem with that in this parable? Yes What? What do you see? Well, Lazarus would have fingers. That's a body. Yeah, and the rich man has a tongue and he has eyes, right? And the, if you're in a flame, are you going to be comforted by Lazarus just dipping his finger in water and then touching your tongue? Okay, he's not trying to teach us something literally that's happening. He's basically telling us a story that in this life you have an opportunity to know God. And you may think that because you have all the things in the world that God's favored you. And this poor man, it must have been something he did in his life. And he's lost. And you're better than that person. But that's an inception of wealth. The poor man... Had so much dependency upon God to comfort him every day. And probably did. If he's in Abraham's bosom and he's going to be in paradise. He no doubt had faith in God. And continued to have faith in God. Even though he couldn't even walk. And there are people like that. Praise God. There are people who have lost everything. They've lost their health. They've lost all their possessions. But guess what? Can you think of a man in the Bible that happened to it too? Job. And yet he still said. I will trust in him. Yes sir. That's what God's looking for. Yes, sir. And apparently this Lazarus was that kind of man if we're looking at a real-life figure. Um, but here, there are no disembodied spirits because people are having physical features, right? But he wants Lazarus to, to comfort him in that, but the reality is, Jesus, it's not possible. People can't cross this chasm. The living can't talk to the dead, and the dead can't talk to each other. Okay, it's just a, these are just props to tell a story. Right. Then he said, "I pray thee, therefore, Father, this is a second request, that thou wouldest send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house, For I have five brother, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment." Abraham said unto him. Um, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, well, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. The purpose of the parable is the last verse. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither... Will they be, if it were possible, even if it were possible for someone to come back from the dead and evangelize. They still won't listen. That's right. Because if they don't study their Bibles every day, it's because they don't really desire to know. And if somehow they just believe because they saw some manifestation of a dead person. Why are they believing it and not believe my word? You see, God wants us to establish our faith in faith in his word this is how he speaks to us as ellen white says the bible is a love letter from god to you personally okay and we need to see it as such and that's the point of the parable it's not teaching us that people go to heaven or hell right away or have disembodied spirits because according to the parable they don't have disembodied spirits if you take this literal right the thief on the cross do we have time and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's in the King James. I looked at every other version and they all have the comma in the same spot. After the word thee. Okay? But what the thief is asking, and this is the literal translation what he asked. Whenever thou may comest into thy kingdom. Right. Think of this thief on the cross. He wasn't part of the twelve. When Jesus came, predominantly the Jewish nation. Jewish nation didn't come out to see him. I mean, a lot did. They wanted to be healed, but the, the Jewish leaders weren't there. I mean, when he's born, who's there? You know, shepherds, a handful of shepherds, three wise men. It's pretty pitiful, isn't it? So, so, um, so this thief on the cross. What would he have known of paradise? Well, he would have known something. He was probably a young Jewish man who got caught up in the wrong crowd, but he had heard at least a concept of a resurrection. Right? But what else would he have known? He wasn't following Jesus, listening to his teachings, but he had something. And that is important and that teaches us something evangelistically. Don't think that because you only got to share a little that that won't make a difference in that person's life. Sometimes people will hang on to one verse in the Bible and it'll give them strength. You don't have to give people a sermon. Just give them some truth. Let the truth do its work. Okay? So this this young man's hanging on the cross, he doesn't even kind of fully understand what he's saying. But he's not saying, I want to be with you in paradise today. Whenever thou comest into thy kingdom is an expression that he doesn't actually know when Christ is going to set up his kingdom. You see that? He didn't expect to go to the kingdom that day. In fact, what is he thinking? Is he thinking timetable? No. His thought is, I know you got a kingdom. I don't know when you're setting this kingdom up. I grew up and I heard something about a resurrection. The emphasis is remember me. Because what he's really thinking is. Am I going to be in this kingdom? He's not thinking about when the kingdom is. He's not thinking, oh, I'm going to be there as soon as I stop breathing. He just doesn't know if he's going to be in that kingdom or not. But he wants to be. And even as Jesus is hanging on a cross next to him, you know who he prefers to be with right now? A crucified Messiah. He's saying, I'm going to leave all my bad associates. And Jesus, you're hanging on a cross right next to me. I want to be with you. I have spent my life on this side of the aisle. I don't know if you're going to let me in your kingdom. But I want to be with you. I believe in you. His disciples have left. And here's a man hanging on a cross who must have done something worthy of capital punishment. And I'm not saying he had a just trial. But what a change of heart. He recognized something that most of the people who passed by Jesus didn't see. Jesus, I want to be with you. And, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have a Bible, don't have much theology. But God can read their heart and read their heart to know whether they really want to be with God. I want to be changed. I don't know how to change. They don't have a Bible. They don't attend a church. And this is why we leave the judgment up to God. Because God can read the heart of like a thief on the cross. And Jesus can say, I promise you, you will be with me in in paradise. Isn't that a beautiful story? You will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus could read the heart. The man had probably never even been in a church. Maybe he'd never been in a synagogue. It's hard to say. It's all about the heart. And when we start thinking about Christ's kingdom, Jesus said it's what? It's not of this world anyway. And yet at the same time, the kingdom of God is, is actually within you. And that's not a contradiction. It's just that he hasn't set up his kingdom yet on earth. So when he's asking to remember him in his kingdom or to be in paradise, it just wasn't going to happen that day because Christ hasn't set up his kingdom yet. He wasn't setting it up that day, right? In fact, when we read the seventh angels, the seventh trumpet, listen to this, Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded and there was great voices in heaven saying the kings of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is Revelation 11.15, the seventh trumpet, which begins in what year? 1844. Because under the seventh trumpet is seen the Ark of the Covenant, and the judgments happening, right? 1844 on, right? When men are able to destroy the earth, when does that start happening? Well, since 1844. I mean, look at what we've done, right? And there's this other evidence that this is from 1844 on. So Christ will actually have received his kingdom before he's here because when he comes here, he's given his reward to those who will be part of his kingdom. But Jesus didn't receive his kingdom the day he went to heaven. He didn't even go to heaven that day. So Jesus telling him he'd be in paradise, Jesus wasn't saying, you're going to paradise today. Christ hadn't even set up his kingdom yet. Christ wasn't going to set up his kingdom for almost 2,000 years later or 1,800 years later. And then the infamous comma. So there's no punctuation in Greek. In fact, there's no space between words. And so today's an adverb. So as far as the Greek is concerned, the word today could go to either one, of the first phrase or the second. It could go either way, Grammatically. Verily I say to thee today, it could go that way grammatically, or today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So grammatically it could go to either side. But there's only one side that's true. Jesus didn't go to heaven that day. So Christ wasn't identifying when, using today, as a way, as an adverb to talk about uh, when they would be in paradise. Jesus, because Jesus didn't go to heaven that day, and probably the thief didn't even die that day. That what Jesus is saying that I, as I hang on a cross, when everybody says, "I'll believe in you if you come down from the cross," Jesus says, "It's as I'm on the cross, I can promise you eternal life." You see, that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. We believe in Jesus because he was on a cross. The Jews rejected Jesus because he was. And to the Gentiles, it's just scandalous to think that the Savior of the world died such a terrible death. And we say, no, he died for me. See, what a difference, right? And so, um, and I need to close up here. I want to finish with one more text. Um and those are the ones um, about uh, let's see. Let's close with this one. I know it's getting late, because this is a pocket one. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall I, and what, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. for I am in a straight place between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And people say, see, Paul wanted to die and go to heaven right away. But is that what Paul's saying? Is it better for Paul, who's gone through so many struggles, shipwrecked, beaten, near death, run his course, written all these books of the New Testament, he knows he's towards the end of his life, and in his mind... I'm ready to die. I'm ready to finish my race. I'm ready to depart this world. But he knew that the next time he would awake, which could be 2,000 years later, at the resurrection, he'd see and he'd be present with Jesus. There wasn't any intermediary time in his mind that he'd be floating around heaven somewhere in some distance with a, without a body. Because if you face death today, knowing what you know, and you've gone through a lot of struggles, and maybe you're going through a lot of chemo or whatever, and you've got a lot of pain, and not that you try to end your life, but you're thinking, I know I'm kind of at the end of my rope, but I believe in the resurrection. And I'm ready to close a chapter in my life. And it's okay, I'm ready. And it's actually kind of better, unless God's got another work for me to do, it's okay. I can fall asleep in Jesus, and my next thoughts will be of him whenever I'm raised from the dead. Whether it's five years from now or 500 years from now, it wouldn't make any difference to me because I, my thoughts have perished. But then I'd be present with the Lord. I would have no more struggles in this body. There wouldn't be any more pain. And that's what Paul's talking about. And because that that agrees with everything else he shared. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before we have our closing prayer, our closing hymn, we'll have a closing hymn here.